Welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast, the podcast focused on helping civil engineering professionals succeed by exposing them to interesting civil engineering projects and successful civil engineering professionals around the world. Hosts Anthony Fasano and Christian Knudsen had successful but unconventional civil engineering careers and now focus on helping civil engineering professionals achieve their goals in work and life. Welcome to episode 15 of the Civil Engineering Podcast. I'm your host today, Chris Knudsen, and this is the podcast specifically for civil engineers who want to succeed and rocket in their civil engineering careers. I hope this finds you doing well wherever you are in the world and whatever project you happen to be engaged in right now. It's finding me doing well, and I'm really excited to be here with you today because in today's episode, I get the opportunity to talk with Dr. A.J. Briding. He's an emergency management and homeland security expert with over 40 years of experience And he currently does consulting work in the Homeland Security arena, but he actually started off as a distinguished graduate in civil engineering from the U.S. Air Force Academy. So it's uh, pretty awesome to have him on the show. He has a wide and uh, very, very broad uh, level of experience. He was in the United States Air Force for a period of time, pilot, civil engineer, graduate, and he's uh, gone on since then to uh, earn his Ph.D. in Homeland Security and has really been involved in the emergency management arena. And he was also involved, and we're going to talk about this in the interview today, but he was also involved after Katrina in 2005. So, you know, we're addressing the 10th year anniversary of the Hurricane Katrina, and he was involved in the year afterwards helping the city to put together a comprehensive emergency management plan. So he's going to talk about that. And the reason we're doing this is because I wanted to open up your aperture to the issues of infrastructure resilience and critical infrastructure protection. I've been involved with both throughout my civil engineering career, and I see the risks to the public welfare increasing from natural, technical, or even man-made disasters going forward, certainly not going to be reducing. And so I don't believe that you need to be designing bunkers or specialized structures or being involved in this field of homeland security and emergency management and resiliency every day, but having a basic understanding of all these concepts are only going to make you a better civil engineer and allow you to be able to consider perspectives that the clients may not even know to ask about. And so we're going to get into that today. We're going to talk a little bit about the uh, importance to the civil engineering profession to have an understanding of resiliency when we're talking about infrastructure and specifically the terminology of critical infrastructure protection. So in the show notes today, there's going to be a ton of resources in there. I've included two handbooks, two of them that I like that come from the Infrastructure Security Partnership, and uh, you'll have links to both of those PDFs in the show notes. And we also get into talking about certifications. As you'll hear when I introduce Dr. Brady, he holds a number of them, and some of them that you may not have heard of before. I certainly didn't hear of some of them before because they come from the uh, IT arena. But I think it's you know useful for us professionally, again, to just have an understanding of the different types of certifications that are out there. And there may be some that interest you just by virtue of the fact that he has been able to put together all of this broad experience, which involved civil engineering at the beginning, and have a very successful and productive career. And I've changed the mix as well now on today's show. You're going to find out that there's no civil engineering project of the week. We're going to get right into the content. And if you'd like to hear the segment come back, or just leave it out, uh, please drop Anthony or I a line by going to civilengineeringpodcast.com and clicking the red Submit Your Project button or Submit a Question button. Either one of them, we're going to get back to you and talk with you in a future episode. 
And a special note to let you know that 20 advanced tickets, that's 2-0, advanced tickets for the 2016 Engineering Career Summit that we're going to hold in New Orleans the 12th through the 14th of May next year are now available. So you can find out more about the event, learn about the great keynote speakers that we have lined up. We've got a couple of them that are lined up that are, are just going to be fabulous. You've already heard from one of them. Will Shire, the uh, CEO of Big Red Dog, he's going to be one of our keynote speakers. And we're also going to have leadership coach and leadership expert Croft Edwards joining us to provide some great leadership advice and probably maybe even take us into a hands-on type of a, of a session. So we're pretty excited about that. And you can learn about all of this at engineeringevent.com. Go there for more details. And we're also looking for sponsors for this year's event. So if you're interested in joining the team, making this year's Premier Engineering Career Success event a reality, shoot me an email at chris at engineeringcareercoach.com. So again, we're looking forward to putting this event on, and we'd love to hear from you. And we'd also like to see you there in New Orleans next May. All right, now it's time to jump into today's Civil Engineering Conversation of the Week with Dr. A.J. Briding. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, welcome back, listeners. And now it's time for this week's Civil Engineering Conversation, where we talk with civil engineering and subject matter professionals to deconstruct the concepts and the skills that they've mastered in their professional careers in order to share this information with you so that you can become world-class in your civil engineering career. And I'm joined today by A.J. Briding, and he's actually Dr. A.J. Briding, who has been involved in emergency management and military operations for over 40 years. He holds the Certified Homeland Security Level 5 Certified Emergency Manager and Certified Organizational Resilience Executive Certifications and is also a project management professional. His PhD is in public policy and administration with concentration on homeland security policy and coordination, and he also holds an MS in laser engineering. He teaches courses on intercultural competence for the Air Force and the impact of national cultures on resilience programs for the International Consortium for Organizational Resilience Online. And we'll provide links for all of this information that we're talking about in the show notes for today's episode. Now, Dr. Bryden was a principal consultant for the City of New Orleans Office of Emergency Preparedness after Katrina hit back in 2005, and he wrote the city's 2006 Comprehensive Emergency Management Plan and restructured its emergency operations center to be fully compliant with federal homeland security directives. He's been involved at the federal, state, and local levels in designing multi-million dollar physical and IT security systems, and has helped develop strategies to defend the U.S. against nuclear and radiological threats. And oh, by the way, he also happens to be an outstanding graduate in civil engineering from his Air Force Academy class, and he's a retired Air Force colonel and pilot. AJ, I'm not really sure where you get the time to do all this stuff, but thank you for taking the time and welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Chris. Uh, boy, you went through that very well. This is going to be fun being here today. Yeah, I I'm really excited to have you on the show. So for all you listeners, AJ and I connected via LinkedIn a couple months ago, and it was based off of an article that he had penned for Inside Homeland Security, which is a which is a Homeland Security journal, and uh, we'll share the links for that as well. And the article is on risk assessment and management. I found this topic to be very interesting because I actually happen to be doing a deep dive on risk assessment and risk management in some other areas, which we've heard about in a previous Civil Engineering Podcast episode. And I thought it'd be great to bring AJ on and have some discussions about risk assessment, risk management, but to take it from the perspective of 
critical infrastructure protection and resiliency in infrastructure, which for all of you out there may be new topics for you, or you may be involved in this already. And if you are involved, I'd love to see comments back from you in the show notes in the comments section for this show so that we can get some dialogue going on this. But if this is new for you, we'd also like those questions as well, because critical infrastructure protection and resiliency in infrastructure is a very important aspect. We're going to unpack this in the discussion that we're just about ready to have. And I want to start, AJ, first by asking you, how important do you see the civil engineer's role in Homeland Security and specifically with regards to critical infrastructure protection? Well, Chris, that's um, hard to summarize. Uh, when you look at the different sectors of uh, critical infrastructure, there are 16 right now, and they run the gamut from energy uh, cracking, oil cracking, and refining facilities, to uh, nuclear power plants, to uh, water reservoirs and uh, processing, to, uh, to data centers. All those things uh, certainly are part of the critical infrastructure. And if any of those go out, they can have obvious local, regional, and national impact. And the, the CE, the one when I approach these, and I've done some critical infrastructure protection projects, more at the, the port security level for seaports, but certainly looking at some of the other ones too, like I said, it's a broad area, but the one fundamental behind all of them is the fact that uh, you've got structures that you operate from in almost all of them. And those structures may be secondary structures like a data center for IT operations. It could be primary like a nuclear power plant or a, uh, a facility to refine petroleum products. And how you design those from the get-go will determine whether they're hardened, resilient, whether they could survive natural, man-made, or accidental uh, threats that today there, there are a lot of them out there and uh, they all can be intentional targets or they all could be the result of uh, damage from an earthquake or something like that. So it all comes down to that facility and how hardened, how secure, how well thought through the planning and layout is and that's right down to the civil engineers and, of course, what the client wants. Yeah, absolutely. That brings up an interesting component when we start talking about the client and maybe starting to look at it from the perspective of, of construction and design code. So my background is military engineering, having worked up uh, through the uh, civil engineering elements within the Air Force. And within the federal government, there's a lot of guidance that is and presented out to the field in which also the architectural and engineering firms have to work with with regards to force protection and hardening or design considerations for facilities. But that may not necessarily be the case on the, uh, well, let's just call it the private sector. So out in the community, if I'm a civil engineer working for an AE firm, working on a design for, let's say, a, a large box you know, commercial real estate project, what would be maybe some, some considerations that I'd want to take into, into account specifically with regards to maybe resiliency? Well, what I would uh, first do, of course, is, uh, and I'm sure I would assume most civil engineers do these days, they check the local codes and regional codes, and uh, those will reflect any type of uh, natural threats such as tornado, earthquake, tsunami, um, those types of things that there are probably provisions that 
make you design and load factors and certain stress uh, analyses to account for wind loading and things like that. So I'm, I'm sure that that's pretty much pro forma for a civil engineer today to make sure all those codes are met. The, uh, the one thing that there are no codes on would be some of the other threats that are starting to get more and more prominent. So threat of cyber attack, the threat of uh, an intentional, whether it's terrorist, lone wolf, or just disgruntled employee type of attack, some of those are becoming a little more significant. And if you put in a little bit of consideration up front on how you lay things out and talk to the client and uh, work through whether or not they want that kind of uh, consideration, you can do some very simple design modifications that uh, make certainly those buildings, those facilities more reliant, the whole layout of the grounds uh, a little more receptive to providing reasonable security. And uh, I'm throwing a lot of different threats in there, but that threat assessment, to get back to your point about uh, risk assessment and management, the threat assessment is key. So if you do a good threat assessment and you take off the blinders, this isn't just about structural loading factors uh, that may come up. It's about uh, some of the other things that may happen as well that you're reading about in papers. If you do a complete threat assessment, you can decide whether it's significant enough to address. And if it is, putting it into the design phase as opposed to trying to retrofit something like that makes it so much more cost effective. And you can often sell that to the client as a reasonable cost. Yeah, absolutely. And so everyone is understanding what we're talking about here. And we, we say about taking the blinders off is for most civil engineers, and I'm no different. I mean, the, the, a lot of the training that I initially had was on issues related to seismic or wind loads, which, you know, there's there's threats that come from that. But we're talking about looking at it from a larger perspective. And unfortunately, we live in a world now where there's everything from insider attacks to external terrorist attacks. And even now, as, as, as AJ just mentioned, cyber attacks and a civil engineer's responsibility and how all that comes together is increasing. And so although it may be cyber or it may be something that we consider to be part of law enforcement it actually has a component of play with regards to the civil engineer. So AJ, I want to maybe dive just a, for a moment here, dive a little bit deeper into the cyber aspect of it, because it's something that I know that I hear a lot about. And my, my guess is anybody who's watching the news is hearing about this as well. And one of the vulnerabilities that I think is really important to a civil engineer to consider is that with regards to the SCADA systems, which are the uh, supervisory control and data systems that, that control a lot of mechanical and electrical systems like water, wastewater treatment plants, obviously in nuclear plants, they're all over the place. Can you share your thoughts about their vulnerability and how best someone might want to go about trying to mitigate this? And that's a good point, Chris. Uh, SCADAS is um, kind of a subset of programmable logic uh, controls that um, basically are the uh, software that run all of those systems you're talking about. And uh, I did a business impact analysis on a water treatment facility that was a municipal one in Arkansas probably about eight years ago. And at the time, SCADA 
was not that much in the news because uh, most of those had an air gap. Literally, they were disconnected. They, they made no connection to the internet. Uh, so there was, they just weren't accessible by hackers. So the thought of being able to uh, hack in and turn off water or to uh, just really mess up the system. And of course, if you extend that to power plants, uh, electrical generation, potentially nuclear, uh, you saw what Stuxnet did. And that was an intentional virus that uh, speculation has it that the U.S. and Israel used to bring down the centrifuges in Iran that were enriching uranium. And uh, how it was introduced is being debated. But once it was introduced, it basically took control of the system, spun the centrifuges up to uh, speeds that they could not tolerate, and they self-destructed. So when you think about that type of application, there's uh, certainly a lot of uh, consequence, a lot of impact or damage that could be done if these things are uh, accessed by the wrong people. And you think about shutting down power across you know, the power grid and, and the ramifications of that. And I don't want to get too much into all of the details. I'm sure everyone kind of has that picture in mind. But uh, the, the issue today is that most of those SCADA and other uh, control systems are being connected to the internet, either inadvertently or by intention. And it could be as simple as putting a printer today that you know, has uh, wireless connectivity or you turn something on and it connects to the internet, the internet of things. You don't even think about that being an issue, but you don't talk it through with your IT department. And the next thing you know, a hacker finds that access point, gets into the system, and now they can uh, ultimately end up controlling that entire system. Yeah. So the, you know, the, it's just a very... Uh, potentially consequential threats, and now it's becoming more, you know, the vulnerabilities are increasing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to put things into, into I guess, context here, I had an experience a, a few years back when I was a, a director of public works, and although it's not, it wasn't tied specifically to a cyber type of attack, I think it kind of highlights what we're, kind of what we're talking about around the edges here of, of this systematic degradation of infrastructure, what I like to think of as these concentric circles of infrastructure that civil engineers have created to support, you know, what we consider our modern society. And I've, I had an opportunity to watch the systematic degradation of that um, a few years back when I was, a, as I mentioned, a d director of public works, where we had a, a very cold spell come through an area down in the Southwest, and it literally knocked up power. There wasn't good maintenance done on generator systems for the gas system. The pumps for those went offline, and we ended up losing gas pressure, which meant that you were going to lose heat, and this was in the middle of winter, and one of the coldest spells in this area that I was in in recorded history, and it was almost a week of, I won't call, I won't call it post-apocalyptic, but it was really, really interesting because nobody, nobody was coming out of their house, and... It literally brought everything to a complete and utter standstill, and um, probably the closest thing that I've seen to a you know complete loss of infrastructure. And I think it's very important for engineers to understand that we play a very vital role in making sure that that stays in place. And that actually, AJ, serves as kind of a good segue into the next area that I really kind of want to unpack with you, which is your work that you did 
in the city of New Orleans uh, post Katrina, and of course we're in the we're in the ten year anniversary year of of Katrina and the the devastation that it wrought on New Orleans. Now you had an opportunity to work with city officials and with a lot of different individuals in putting together that comprehensive emergency management plan. How do you believe that civil engineers might have better prepared that city to weather the record storm event? And were there any lessons learned maybe from either Katrina or Hurricane Sandy that you can summarize for us, you know, about what engineer civil engineers specifically might do or consider at least when they're looking at cities that are near near coastal areas? Uh, you know, you just opened up a, another huge topic there. And of course, so much of the debate about uh, New Orleans' vulnerability to Katrina centers around the civil engineering aspects. Uh, and more, if, if, even in a bigger picture, the uh, urban planning aspects. So when you look at, uh, first of all, the levee breaches and the pump failures that first caused the problem, that, of course, is the Corps of Engineers, and uh, they pretty much fessed up to, they underdesigned the system, and that, uh, of course, now they've got a new 100-year plan that's much more robust to include stronger levees, uh, much more robust pumping systems, and then the barriers on the waterways to uh, prevent any type of surge uh, effect like they had before. And there's no doubt about it. That was just the worst case scenario. Katrina was not an epic storm, but the way it hit, uh, and of course the rotating puts the surge, the, the cyclical nature of it puts the surge on the one side of it because that's where the wind is blowing into the coast and it just hit perfectly to surge the water up the uh, inland waterway in the Lake Pontchartrain, train and then to overcome the systems in place. But then, of course, the next part of that was that, like the lower ninth ward being uh, below sea level. The whole city is was, in general, for the most part, vulnerable because of its uh, being major parts of it below sea level. So once that water came in, it was brackish water. It, uh, it was standing water. Most floods you see come in, the river subsides, the water's out. But in New Orleans, it was standing. You had to pump it all out, and that meant uh, three, four weeks of brackish water and the weight of that sitting on all the infrastructure, all of the underground the cables and conduits and the sewage systems, water systems. They were never built to take anything like that. So... First of all, the first line of defense field, that was all civil engineering. That was the Army Corps of Engineers. And then, uh, of course, politics start getting into it. So uh, something like that, it's, it's not just a claim, okay, here's what we have to do. We have to rebuild at the higher levels or else put all the uh, housing that we re rebuild on uh, concrete foundations that are above the waterline, things like that. Of course, those are direct civil engineering concepts uh, that basically mitigate the risk. But then you get into the politics. Uh, how much does that cost? Are we going to leave uh, a, a culturally significant area and rebuild someplace else? And the culture down there is a huge driver, and rightly so. So that's got to be considered. And of course, when the civil engineers and the urban planners start to do this, they've got to have that consultation with all the people with it, that have equity in the results. So it's a very complex problem. But certainly, 
having hurricane resistant structures, uh, building them carefully to standard there, and then uh, having the Corps of Engineers beef up the uh, peripheral defenses, and then having response capability, which there is some civil engineering concepts that play out in there, but that's where the emergency management agencies need to be able to step in and say, okay, are we resilient? Can we take the worst case scenario and respond? And of course, New Orleans couldn't. They totally failed on that aspect as well. Certainly. And and for any civil engineers that are out there that are working in either municipal, state, or federal governments, I highly recommend that you link up, if you haven't already done so, with your emergency managers at the appropriate levels where you are so that you can have these types of discussions. Now, you and I both share this. We've got this engineering degree, but in front of that, there's the word civil. And to me, I've always thought, well, that the civil component, that really means society. And so we're really engineers for society. And with that, I always think has come this this extra responsibility of making sure that we're doing whatever we can to try to protect the society that we support. And so I think from the what you just explained, it's you know kind of really highlights the importance that civil engineers can bring to these types of issues. And it's so important to do the work and the legwork up front. I mean, that's where it's got to be done because coming in afterwards, everybody has their own opinions about what could have been done. But if there hasn't been the level of effort and the thought put into it on the front end, you know, we can see some unfortunate situations to play out. So I guess I want to maybe ask now, if there's other engineers, civil engineers that may be involved already. So we may not be bringing up a new topic here, but they may already be involved in security infrastructure work and support especially if they're doing any type of architectural engineering or construction work for the federal uh, sector, or perhaps even server centers for major IT nodes or major, let's say, uh, probably financial type centers. What are a few of the more typical design considerations that a civil engineer may encounter with these types of what I classify and I think is really kind of out there in the open sector as mission essential type infrastructure systems? If I may, before I answer that, let me just make a, a couple more points on New Orleans there. And one is probably the bane of all of this, and that's point solutions, where you are hired to provide a solution for a very specific and narrow cause, and none of the linking effects are considered. So uh, you may put in just an outstanding uh, physical security system, but your IT system just is uh, the weak link and is easily overcome. So those point solutions, when they don't consider the entire uh, interplay of the interrelationships in the comprehensive picture, generally are suboptimal at best and often can be detrimental. And uh, certainly, uh, just to reinforce what you said, uh, in New Orleans, it was civil engineering failures that led to the uh, once once the water started coming in, the uh, electrical infrastructure failed, power infrastructure that failed, the communications that failed, the water systems. It was just one big cascading sequence of events. None of that was intentional. It was all simply oversight, negligence, and uh, poor civil engineering. Most of that because the client wanted nothing more than a point solution here or there. Okay, so when getting back to your question, um, when you design the federal facilities that I've looked at, 
the uh, main point there is certainly you provide whatever functionality the client, the agency wants you to design. So you can design them a nice facility. And, and what I think of uh, as an example is, is a elementary school here in my area. Beautiful school. It's uh, very functional for education. It's a great learning environment, but it's also all windows and glass. And that. There is absolutely no way to secure it. So if there were a shooter threat or a parent that wanted to abduct or someone wanted to abduct a child, boy, it, uh, by the time the, the responders got there, the event would be over. And there's just no way to put in the defenses you would want. So that's the same type of thing a lot of times you see on some of these modern structures that you've got very airy, open up areas. Now, the questions you probably want to ask are, does this make sense? If it was you in there, what are the threats? Is there a shooter, a disgruntled employee? Uh, if so, what might we do to channel any type of motion into a place where it could be handled? Are there safe areas that uh, people could hide in and be secure? Uh, is the uh, IT center, the server center tucked away so it's uh, not going to be impacted by an explosion outside, something like that? So those are all basic physical security, probably what you would uh, have experienced in your anti-terrorism force protection civil engineering uh, concepts that uh, make a lot of sense. And you can design them in up front without really, and sometimes without even the client understanding it, you, know, you say, well, here's the layout, and they go, oh, this is pretty nice. And then you point out, by the way, these are the resilient features that we've built into it. So from the beginning to have the talk with the IT people, what are their requirements? And of course, a lot of that is part of the normal project design and all of that, but certainly thinking through the threats, not only just structurally, but in general that the client might face, the regional threats, and then uh, thinking through, does this facility address those? That's outstanding. And you know what I'm hearing here is that really the, the civil engineer has this opportunity on the front end to be able to identify different types of design considerations that may not even be asked for and deliver that, not only that additional value to their client, but ultimately down the road, it's it's delivering a, a level of security and safety for the public, which, which again is something that professional engineers and engineers in general have this, you know, this professional responsibility to do. So that's, I, I appreciate you sharing that. So again, this is the Civil Engineer Podcast, and a lot of listeners are at least aware of or, or have heard of the American Society of Civil Engineers a report card on infrastructure, which always highlights the state, the poor state, if you will, of the infrastructure within the United States specifically. I think what I want to ask associated with that is what do you think is the greatest risk to our nation's infrastructure? And what can civil engineers might you know do to mitigate that? And like the ASCE report card, do you think it's more of a policy issue or is it more of a design issue and why? Another tough question, very complex. With the federal government has approached risk assessment and management by uh, looking at all of the threats that would make an impact uh, either through a big part of the region or, or nationally. And uh, they called them the national planning scenarios. 
and they decided on a risk management strategy of addressing the high consequence ones, not the necessarily the ones that are the most likely or some of those other factors, but the ones that would be devastating. And I think there are 15 or 16 of those. And so that runs a whole, the whole gamut of threats. Uh, it could be the natural disasters like a massive earthquake, the New, New Madrid uh, fault zone, something like that. It could be a California earthquake, uh, shutting down the ports and uh, not only just the damage to California, but the damage you, know, you shut down the uh, West Coast or the East Coast port system. And boy, that will bring down the economic system. There are those kinds of things. Of course, a massive hurricane coming into the East Coast, uh, bigger and more uh, powerful than Sandy. And then you start adding in the uh, unintentional accidents, like a nuclear reactor incident that was just not intentional, but uh, due to some sort of aggravated circumstances. Uh, You throw in things like the intentional, certainly, Acts like a, an attack to bring down the uh, power grid, probably from a cyber attack, something like that, or a, a chemical, let me just say WMD, chemical, biological, radiological type of attack, you know, nuclear weapon, improvised explosive device smuggled in. There's a huge range of threats with national impact. And so there's, uh, you know, writ large, there are a lot of different things that have to be addressed, and that all falls ultimately into civil engineering. So it's a tough question to answer. Yeah, there's just a lot of different aspects of it. And I've been involved in some of these components and some of these issues uh, through my career. And, and just AG, just like you mentioned, I mean, there's a lot. <laughs> I threw a tough one at you. Not quite a curveball, but I threw a tough one at you because you're right. There's a lot of different facets. And I think my contribution to this piece of the discussion is that you know the, the civil engineer's responsibility really is to really become involved in their local community and if they are working for an organization where these types of issues come up to become more uh, aware of what these issues are so that they can be a positive and active contributor as opposed to someone that's just waiting for things to happen and i think that this actually brings up you know, kind of a good question. So you and I both hold certifications in Homeland Security. Yours goes to five, mine, mine only to three. But I, th- I know that there's other certifications out there. And when I read your bio at the, at the start of the interview here, you've, you've got a number of other ones that are out there. A lot of our listeners are either in pursuit of their professional engineer's license or they already hold it. And some of them are also holders of the project management professional, as both of us are. But you know, I'd, I'd be interested to hear what you what your thoughts are about the benefits of holding these, you know, the, the different types of, of certifications, because this, this is a question that my partner and Anthony and I get a lot from our listeners and uh, the engineers that we coach. So can you maybe discuss a little bit more about the certifications you hold and some of the importance behind them? The two primary ones in this area would be my certified emergency manager. And uh, that one requires, and off the top of my head, I don't remember the number of years of working in a position that uh, directly relates to emergency management. And then you've got to, as with most of these, you've got to go through some uh, educational 
requirements, a certain number of uh, continuing education programs, whether they're certifications or just going on to FEMA, uh, Federal Emergency Management Agencies, uh, Online Institute, and taking courses that uh, pertain to that. And then there usually is a test involved just to see if, if you have the basic concepts in, in place. And what's, what's nice about that is that uh, those that require the experience generally, in my mind, say more than those that you just take a test and get your certification. And of course, uh, going to better accredited bodies for those types of certifications uh, makes a statement too. For me, I found that they oriented me when I went from the military into the emergency management and homeland security community. They gave me the perspectives to make that shift. So getting the certified emergency manager, the certified homeland security ones. And then another one that I think is very useful and would be for civil engineers is the certified organizational resilience certification and executive, which is the highest level of that. But that you have to combine certifications and a lot of things to uh, to get there. So it's not you get that broadening that is really worthwhile so that you're, you're taking the blinders off in that sense. So uh, it could be logistics, it could be IT, it could be uh, all sorts of different things that uh, contribute to overall resilience. And then um, quite honestly, the project management professional, just going through that and understanding the details of project management and how a good program should be run, to me, that was invaluable. That, and I still use that. I refer to that for every project I tackle, even when it comes to buying a car or something. <laughs> that you know, The practical aspects of that were phenomenal. I agree fully with you on the, uh, on the PMPI. I tap into the uh, basic knowledge of that all the time, so that, that's great to hear you bring that forward as well. So there's a, there's going to be a ton of links in the show notes. So all of you that are listening, all the listeners, don't fret because you got to hit rewind and try to try to capture all that. There's going to be a, a nice long listing of links to all of this information that we talked about in the show notes for today's episode. So I want to ask just all, we're getting towards the end of the discussion here, and I want to ask you where listeners might be able to go to learn a little bit more about critical infrastructure protection. Probably the best place, you know, God bless the internet. It, uh, <laughs> it's our savior and it's probably going to uh, do us in. But uh, if you start Googling national infrastructure protection, and I know you have, uh, you may reach an international audience here, but certainly the U.S. has put a lot of effort into it. And, uh, after uh, Katrina and that, I mean, it's been an evolutionary process for a long time. So we have pretty robust systems, well thought through policies. Uh, and so anytime you go on and Google like a national or federal, let's say, uh, national infrastructure protection, you'll come up with some key federal sites for the preparedness guidelines, for the planning scenarios, for things like the National Infrastructure Protection Plan. And that breaks down all the sectors, and there are sector-specific plans. And there's just uh, the general discussion of critical infrastructure, uh, what it is, what the risks are, and what you should be aware of. So that's the first place I go. And I cover a lot of areas, so I always... Google before I jump into something, 
to get up to speed because things change and then to uh, kind of pick up some of the uh, details or gaps that fill those in. So there is a lot out there in between DHS and the White House. They put out a lot of policy and a lot of programs concerning critical infrastructure. We'll share a, a lot of links in the show notes for this episode because it, just as you mentioned, AJ, there's a lot of information out there. If you're new to this concept of critical infrastructure protection and you want to learn more, we'll give you some primer information uh, to get out there. And if you're more of an expert in this area and you've worked it before, We'd love to hear from you, so please send me a send me an email. Send us some uh, some comments back on this, and we can uh, we can unpack it and dig a little bit more into it. All right, well, AJ, I've got one last question that I want to ask you, and it's one that I ask all the guests that come on the show, and that is, what is one of the best decisions that you made in your career, and why? Well, actually, it was a decision I made before my career started, and that was where I was going to go to college. And, uh, you know, I was a high school senior, still had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. And uh, came from a military family, was living here in Colorado. So I put in my application for the Air Force Academy. And lo and behold, I got accepted. And I thought, okay, that's all I need, and headed off that direction. And it was serendipitous. It wasn't foresight. It wasn't like I knew exactly what I wanted to do. Yes, I wanted to be, I liked the military. My father was military. So I thought that sounded pretty good. But um, that opened up just an amazing uh, lifestyle for me that uh, I, I was offered a pilot training slot and uh, I went off to that and I never looked back. Uh, everything I did in my career, the last 30 years, I enjoyed. So the key there is you don't have to be a military guy, but if you can find, if you're lucky enough to determine what you want to do early enough, commit to something that your heart's in. You've heard that before, but I will tell you it is essential to really enjoy. And then when I retired, I said, okay, I like what I was doing. What can I leverage there? And I went off into Homeland Security and I still enjoy it. And uh, it's a matter of finding something you like to do. If you don't like it, finding something that you will like, putting your heart into it and then you know, your effort gets rewarded and opportunities present themselves and then you may end up in a different direction, but it's a good direction. So uh, I guess I'm not sure what kind of advice you get out of that other than find something you can really sink your teeth into and enjoy and I guarantee you'll do well. Those are wonderful words, awesome words, and, and I want to thank you for the, uh, for the exceptional work that you're doing with regards to the you know, to the arena of critical infrastructure protection and resiliency. So thank you very much. And, and thank you a lot for joining me on today's show. That was my pleasure. I always enjoy chats like this. Thank you so much for joining me today, AJ. And everyone, please remember you can find the show notes for this episode by going to civilengineeringpodcast.com forward slash security. There you'll find links to all of the books, websites, and other references we touched on in this interview today. Go over there, check them out, and until next week, I wish you the best in all of your civil engineering endeavors. 
Thank you for listening to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Be sure to visit civilengineeringpodcast.com, where you can listen to past episodes and also submit your project to be featured on the show. We also invite you to visit our main website at engineeringcareercoach.com and download a free three-part video series created specifically for engineers to help you best utilize LinkedIn for networking, improve your communication and speaking skills, and also help to develop your leadership abilities. Now is the time to engineer your own success. 